0: Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. I pause before I ask Pilate's question because I, probably like a lot of you, wonder just how did Pilate say that? Was it snide? Was it dismissive? Was it hopeless? I don't know. The Son of God stood before Pilate and told him, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will hear me, will listen to me. Pilate utters these words, what is truth, which in and of itself is an excellent question. And then what did he do next? He walked out the door. He had the truth right in front of him and asked the right question. And then he walked out the door before he got the answer. When we look at the first century Roman world, and Wade was referring to this a little bit in his lesson, it's easy to understand why Pilate was the way he was about truth. First century Roman Empire was much like our own era. People had lost faith in the old religions because society was steeped in pluralism. Gibbon talks about how people assembled at various altars worshipping various deities, but they'd all convinced themselves that they were just worshipping the same deities by different names. People were drowning in despair and hopelessness. One source I read said that in the first century, it was not uncommon among the wealthy for things like the following to happen. A group to get together, have a sumptuous banquet, things like peacock tongue and so forth. And then when all was said and done, maybe for a rich, wealthy individual, totally bereft of hope to go off by himself, drink some poison and kill himself. There was no hope. There was no set idea about what truth was. So, Pilate's question may well have just fallen within the zeitgeist of the day. What's truth? Nobody knows. You don't either. It's easy to have mixed emotions about the truth. To want to know what it is and yet kind of not want to know. To want to follow it and yet not follow it. To serve it that there's a desire to be served by it. The thing about truth, though, is how I feel about it has absolutely nothing to do with it. Pilate, pardon me, John Adams, was defending those British regulars who had fired upon the citizens of Boston. He was a young man. He believed that everyone deserved a fair trial. And he was defending these men. And many of them, if not all of them, were let off. But in the course of that trial, he said to the jury... The following statement, and many have said it since, and maybe some have said it before. He said, Facts are stubborn things. It doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I believe, it doesn't matter how I feel about a thing. If it's true, it's true, and it remains true. It is the constant in a world of inconstancy. And truth is powerful because it informs me of what is real and allows me to live in harmony with that. So what is truth? Well, truth is a thing that is absolute. I was talking with a woman in Lakewood, Colorado. She just lived right down the street, not too far from the J Street meeting house. We were canvassing in the area. I came to her door. She was out on her patio. I don't know if she was out on her patio at the time, but she came out on her patio at least. Was sitting in a lawn chair, and I was trying to share with her The gospel, but realized as I was talking with her, we had to do a lot of background work. She told me that as a church going child, she'd get to feeling pretty good during the week, but then her mom and dad would take her to this church where they made her feel guilty. She said, I was always being made to feel guilty, and she told me, I don't want to feel guilty anymore. So she'd found a church that would use the word sin, but she was told there's really no such thing as sin, strictly speaking. Sin is just a mistake. It's nothing to feel guilty about. And she liked this. But of course, to hold a position like that requires that you ignore a lot of things. So we were talking about the Gospels, how we can know that really this is the revealed Word of God about the Savior. And she would not discuss with me in a logical way the facts that bolster the reliability of the Bible. And I finally, in a desperate attempt, as I stood there on her patio, I asked her, am I standing here? And I was not being funny. I was just asking her, am I standing here? Now, if she had said no, she would have looked silly. But if she had said yes, what would she have just done? There is such a thing as truth, and that truth is knowable. And if you can know that I'm standing here, then that gives us a foundation to find out what else we can know. She didn't answer me. There may be those in the world today, and I'm sure there are, who would tell us that we can't really prove that we're here. This may all just be, I don't know how they bother to describe it, but we are. If someone holds a gun to my head, a loaded gun, I can say, you're not really there. This is all just a figment of our combined conscious, if you pull that trigger, nothing's going to happen, but when they pull the trigger, I'm going to be dead. We are here. This is real. Francis Schaeffer tells us that prior to about 1890 in Europe and about 1935 in the United States, you could have engaged another person in a discussion on any topic, be it religion, history, philosophy... Science, whatever. And though you may have taken up opposing positions, you and the other individual would have been operating on the same premise. That is, your discussion would have been based on the same foundation, even though you disagreed. And that foundation was that there is absolute truth. And that whatever is true, its opposite is false. Philosophers have explained it in this fancy way. A is A, and if you have A, it is not non-A. They've got names for this law, but it's very straight ahead. If a thing is true, its opposite cannot also be true in the same way at the same time. At my home, right now, there is a desk in my office, and on that desk sits a black lamp. If someone comes along and tells you, no, on John's desk sits a purple lamp, they are wrong. It's not reality. I wouldn't dare have a purple lamp on my desk. (laughs) This is how we naturally think. This is not hard. Even those who argue that there is no such thing as absolute truth, or that we can't know that there is such a thing as absolute truth, what have they just done, in essence? They have said, it is an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. It is an absolute truth that you can't know there is absolute truth. It is self-refuting. We think this way because we are a part of reality, and this is reality. One thing is true and its opposite is not. Our minds are so created by God that they think this way. Truth is not only absolute, it is unified. When we consider the totality of reality, we find that there is a unity to it all. What do I mean by this? I'm going to use an example. In the world of physics today, physicists are searching for what they call a unified field theory. Stephen Hawking, perhaps the preeminent physicist of our day, or who is believed to be, has written the following. The eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he goes on to say, Today, scientists describe the universe in terms of two basic partial theories. The general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. Now, we're somewhat familiar at least with those names. Quantum mechanics deals with the very small. Relativity, general relativity deals with the very big. He says, unfortunately, these two theories are known to be inconsistent with each other. And here's what this man of science says. They cannot both be correct. One of the major endeavors in physics today is a search for a new theory that will incorporate them both. He says, we know... Well, what we do know is that relativity is right in some respects. Your GPS system wouldn't work if it wasn't. We know that quantum mechanics is right in some respects. Electronics are on some level based on it, I believe. We know they're right to some extent, but there are parts of them that disagree. One theory is wrong or both are wrong, but both cannot be right. Let's generalize this principle to the rest of reality. Whatever is true scientifically will agree with what is true historically. That in turn will agree with what is true sociologically, which will agree with what is true religiously. And where any of these areas of study overlap, I find them to disagree what must be true. One or both is wrong. Because truth cannot argue against truth. Truth is absolute. It is unified. And once I know it, I can cooperate with reality. So now to the question. What is true in religion? And if we're going to ask this question objectively, we have to approach it with this, in this way. I have to be open to the possibility, when I'm Beginning to study these things, I have to be open to the possibility that, real, that religion has no relationship with reality. That religion is wrong. That it's at odds with what I know about the universe. It's at odds with what I know about human experience and therefore is incorrect. But is that correct? Let's take, let's create an example here and let's pretend we are talking to an atheist. You have just had the opportunity to engage an atheist in conversation and this person seems to be willing to think with you. How would you approach this? Well, there are lots of ways you could. Francis Schaeffer calls what I'm about to do taking the roof off. In other words, atheism is built on a group of lies. And these lies serve to protect the individual from the reality they don't want to accept. My responsibility is to lovingly and gently take the roof off, remove the lies, so they can see their vulnerability. How do I do that? Well, one thing I might do is just ask them to consider. Let's look at the world around us. What do we see in 21st century America, since that's the world we live in? I live in a world of road rage. We were down in Texas several years ago, and uh, I don't know what I did, Here I've got my family in a van. I I don't know if I accidentally pulled in front of a guy or did something. And instead of just giving me a honk in the horn or whatever, he started revving his engine and riding right along me for a while. It was night somewhere in the city. And I I have to admit, I wonder, what's this going to turn into? What am I dealing with? That wasn't something people were worrying too much about 30 years ago. But it's a reality now. A few years ago, I was in the home of a woman who had no fewer than five locks on her front door. You knock on the front door. Who is it? She happened to know me. I told her, and you hear from me inside the door. Shh, 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 shh. Was she paranoid? No. If I lived in her neighborhood, I might have had five locks on my door too. In Kansas City, at what used to be called at least the Grandview Triangle, in March and April of 2014, we had at least 13 shootings. It's an intersection of two or three highways come in there. And we had a fella driving through the intersection with all those people and pulling up next to cars and just taking shots at him with his pistol. We've seen what's happened at Ferguson twice now. We live in a country where school shootings and church shootings are a real threat. We have security guards patrolling the halls of our public schools. Teachers and students used to be concerned with spit wads. Now they're concerned about Bullets. We have become a society that is boiling over with hopelessness, with despair, with hatred, with rage. Any eye can see this, regardless of what you believe. The question is, what's going on? It didn't used to be this way. It wasn't all that long ago that the things I fear for with respect to my children never crossed the minds of the common day American. What has happened? What has prompted the change? Certainly we all agree that it's not a positive change. What's happened? Well, what's changed in America is what people believe. And what we believe determines how we behave. When the Bible was in school, guns weren't. Not in the way they are now. It was said earlier today, and I just want to reiterate the point. I wasn't living then, but that's what I gather, that people 60 years ago at least paid lip service to the bible there was a general consensus that has not is not reality anymore what's all this have to do with it as faith in god in the bible has decreased the evils we're talking about have increased and in the generation where faith is smallest these evils are greatest is this not worth at least considering That biblical faith produces a safer, saner, sounder, superior society than this thing we have now. Might that at least give one pause? Might there be something to this faith? Look to yourself, we might say to our atheist friend. You are conscious. That is, you are self-aware. You alone, among all the living things that roam this planet... Think about yourself in terms of purpose and meaning. Sensitive people today are struggling for their lives, Schaeffer says, asking the question, what is the purpose of man? Now that's an interesting thing. If I'm the product of meaninglessness, if I just came about through random chance, why am I even thinking about meaning? Where did I even get the idea? A river doesn't rise above its source. I don't know how many of you saw the... uh, Bill Nye Ken Ham debate on creationism some of you may have seen that it was on the internet you could watch it live something like two and a half hours at the end of their debate the crowd the audience was allowed to ask the debaters questions and one of the questions that was posed to Bill Nye was how does evolution explain human consciousness what we're talking about right now Bill Nye's answer was we don't know I appreciated his honesty. I think that was a more honest answer than some he gave later. But it's an honest answer. Now, does the fact they don't know prove that they might not find out? Speaking in a, in a general way? No, of course not. But it can't be explained. They're going to continue to not know the answer. We seek for values to govern our lives, and we want to live consistently with those values. Everyone you and I meet is trying to act in a way that fits what they believe, at least on some level. Each of us leans upon an inner set of convictions to support us in our daily affairs. Since most people prefer mental stability over mental instability, when people find that the way they are behaving does not line up with what they believe, they do one of two things. They change the way they behave, or they seek to change what they believe, and people do it all the time. I want to behave this way, I've always thought it was wrong, but... I've now decided it's not wrong. Because when you constantly live in a way against what you believe, it will drive you almost crazy. So it has to be resolved. Now, if we are simply a mass of molecules accidentally assembled through impersonal chance, why do we care? Why do we care? The atheist also finds himself or herself in a very difficult position. They say there is no God. And that might be believable while they sit there in their living room, or they sit there in a college classroom. But then they go out in life and start interacting with the rest of humanity. And if you do something that is uh, harmful to them, or hinders life the way they want it to go, they tell you, you can't do that. That's wrong. The atheist is living a dichotomy. He's living a Jekyll and Hyde existence. He believes one thing while he sits in the classroom and he believes another entirely when he lives his life. One of those positions is wrong. If there is no God, there is absolutely no reason why I can't do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it. Social contract theory does not solve the problem. Oh, we have to do what's best for the group. Best? Who says? Maybe me doing what I want's what's best. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and... There's no reason why I can't. I can murder you, I can abuse your mother, and do terrible things. You can't tell me I'm wrong if there is no God. So that's an important point to consider. Can you live in harmony with your convictions? If you can't, something is amiss. So what is the truth about religion? Well, Let me say one more thing before we seek to answer the question fully. We must live open to the questions we pose to others. I know that almost everyone in the room, maybe everyone in the room, believes there is a God and believes that the Bible is the Word of God. But let me ask you, why do you believe that? The Bible is not the only book that claims to be from God. There are lots of books that claim to be from God. There are lots of books with lots of history. Why do you believe the Bible? When Ken Ham and Bill Nye were asked in that debate, what would it take? Is there anything that would convince you to change your mind? What would it take to get you to change your point of view? Ken Ham gave this really kind of lame answer. And Bill Nye gave a dishonest answer, I think. Give it short shrift. Ken Ham gave kind of a lame answer because his faith does not really rest on evidence, but on experience. I know this because I listened to an interview after the fact. He says, you know, I know these things are true because of a, of a spiritual experience, a spiritual knowledge that he has. And How do you convey that to these unbelievers? So we had to come up with something to say. Do you believe what you believe because of an experience? I hope not. I can, I can talk to Mormons. I've had a Mormon man stand up in his living room and point to the heavens and say, deity has spoken to me! That's how he knew the Book of Mormon was true. He had a burning in the bosom. Am I denying that he had an experience? No. But does it prove that the Book of Mormon is right? No. And why doesn't it prove that the Book of Mormon is right? Because the Book of Mormon flies in the face of the evidence. I was talking with a brother about the Ken Ham deb- Bill Nye and Ken Ham debate, and about that question. And this brother was voicing his disappointment in Ken Ham's answer. And he said the following. Show me the bones of Jesus Christ and I'll reconsider my position. Does that statement make you nervous? If someone could, now granted, it's not going to happen, but evidence is what has persuaded me of that. But let's speak hypothetically. It's a hypothetical, but it illustrates a point. If someone were to walk into this room, and were able, I don't know how they'd be able, but they were able to conclusively prove to you that they had in their possession the bones of Jesus Christ. What would that require of you and me? That would require a change, would it not? If Jesus' body is still here, He did not raise from the dead. He said He was going to. The apostles always said he had. If he did not raise from the dead, it's all a lie. The point is, our faith must rest in evidence. I believe the Bible is the word of God because after searching other possibilities and looking at the evidence, it stands up. Is every single question I have answered? No. But enough is answered to point me to that conclusion beyond any reasonable doubt. But we must be open to evidence. That's what we're asking our atheist friends to do. That's what we're asking our religious friends to do. And we must do the same. So what is the truth about religion? What is this truth that sets me free? The truth is there is a God. And no word is so meaningless as the word God until it is defined. By God we mean the God of the Bible. In the beginning, God. The God who said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me. The God who is light, love, and a consuming fire. The God who is not remote like the God I might find over in India, like the gods we were hearing about earlier today, but a God who can be found and wants to be found. This God spoke through His Apostle. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him though He is not far from each of us. This God is near. Not visible, but near. And I can know Him not exhaustively, but truthfully. Let Him who glories glory in this that He understands and knows Me That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9.24 And this God who I can know has told me that my responsibility towards Him is to love Him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, why should I have to do anything that God tells me to do? Well, you make your own universe and then you can make the rules. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His sheep and the flock. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. He's the one who made it all. He is the origin of the species. He gets to decide. And it's not like He hasn't demonstrated to us that He genuinely cares for us. Jesus made the world knowing all along that He was going to come, have to come down here, be abused, lied about, spat upon, hit, murdered and disregarded by almost everybody. That is not a God who doesn't care. God calls me to love Him. I, a finite being, can have a relationship with the infinite God. God is of such a nature that He can be loved, and I am of such a nature that I can love. That's quite a thing. but I haven't loved Him. And you, at some point in your life, and for some of you even now, you haven't either. Jesus said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. And what have I done? I haven't. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and as a result, I have moral guilt. I don't feel guilty. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I haven't. But whether I feel guilty or not, I am guilty. God made me, therefore I owe Him everything, even if I don't understand everything He wants from me. He has shown me He loves me, so He says, do this, and when I don't do it, I am guilty. And furthermore, because I am a finite being, dealing with an infinite being, I have made a mess that I can't clean up. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And unlike the Greek gods to whom you sacrificed in hopes that they'd leave you alone, you'd keep them at bay, who manipulated their people as pawns for their own entertainment, the one true and living God has said, yes, you have made a mess of things. You have offended me beyond your own understanding. But I want you to be with me. and I will provide the means for you to make your way back. And isn't it interesting that God made that way for us in history. God did not reveal His will to us via a textbook, and I'm so glad. But it's not. It's a history book. It's not a group of rules, All right, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you'll knock it out. (coughs) We're given a story, His story, and we're told to respond to something that really happened. And Jesus says, if you do so, based on the knowledge I'm offering, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So what is freedom? You're talking to your atheist friend and you've got him interested. Alright, so what's that mean? Free from what? What is freedom? You've got a fellow who's been in jail for 20 years, <coughs> they let him out the door and he says, I'm free! Is he? Yeah! He's not restrained nearly to the extent he has been for the past 20 years. Now he can eat when he wants. Now he can go do the things he wants when he wants. But it's not freedom without restraint. Freedom is not freedom from all restraint. It's freedom to work within restraint. A man might say, I'm free to do whatever I want. If I want to jump off that building, I can. Well, Yes, you can, but you're not free to choose the consequences. Freedom does not exist without law. Liberty and law are not mutually exclusive. James even speaks of the perfect law of liberty. Liberty is the right to go just as far as the law allows. It is is not the right to do just as you please, but the liberty to do as you ought. God has confined the world under law. There's a thing called gravity. I don't know why God made gravity, but He did. And just as the physical universe is governed by those laws, so also is the spiritual universe. And I have to work within those. And the Lord frees me to do so. By freeing me from my sin. Most assuredly I say to you, Jesus said in John 8 34, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul says in Romans 6 6, we should no longer be slaves of sin. It's very easy to understand the slavish nature of sin when we think of addiction. Pornography, gambling, medication, eating. They control they exercise over people and the hopelessness they engender over time. Paul speaks of how sin can reign in your mortal body so that you obey it in its lust. Jesus has come to set people free from that slavery. You have been freed by Him who proclaimed liberty to the captives. He's issued an emancipation proclamation. You've been freed from sin. No longer are you guilty of it, but you don't have to obey it. Paul talks about it in this way in Romans 6. He says that you're dead to sin. Why does he use that expression? Why use the word dead to sin? Say, well, that means you're, what does that mean? Dead to sin. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, so I'll make it quick. But Dwayne Stoops' father, Sylvan Stoops, passed away when I was still living in Ozark. Or in the Springfield area, and after that funeral was over and people were filing out, I was standing right up here next to Sylvan's coffin. Pretty much everyone had filed out except family and Daisy, his widow, who'd been married to him for some 70 years. She's brought up to the casket, and of course she's just overcome with grief. She leans over and she kisses Sylvan's forehead. What did Sylvan do? What did the body do? Nothing. You know, had she kissed him just six or seven days earlier, he would have responded, he would have smiled, he would have looked up at her, maybe kissed her back. But now he does nothing. The dead don't respond. And this is what it means to be free from sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You don't have to respond to sin. Now there's reasons for that. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. There's this blessing of God's indwelling in you. You didn't have that before. You have it now. You have been freed by that truth. You have been freed from an accusing conscience. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Well, what's an evil conscience? Well, in Romans 2, verse 15, Paul talks about how your conscience can accuse you or excuse you. An evil conscience is a conscience which is accusing me of evil. When I do what I know is not right or what I believe is not right, my conscience being weak is defiled. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7 but your heart has been sprinkled from an evil conscience. The Jew didn't have that. The Jew could go and go through all the sacrifices and all the time know that next day of atonement we're going to have to go through all this again because my sin's really not been taken away. And he lived with that cloud hanging over him. But the weight of sin, which perhaps for years burdened you and beset you and beat you down, the Bible says God is forgiven. He has blotted it out. He's washed it away. He's removed as far as the east is from the west. He's cast it in the depths of the sea. He remembers it no more. And because He's forgotten it, you can too. That's freedom. People who live in the past fail in the present. Jesus has said, you don't need to do that. Don't do it. I died to free you from your guilt, from your past, now live in the light of the Lord by the power of His Spirit. That's freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from sin. Freedom from an accusing conscience. And freedom from fear. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five and 56. O oh death, where is your sting? Do you remember what he says the sting of death is? I used to read that verse. I, I didn't make any sense to me. Oh, it's great, great. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. What's he talking about? But it all makes sense. What makes people afraid to die? What's that? I'm getting kind of deaf. It's sin, isn't it? Ultimately. Well, when I die, I don't know what's going to happen well, not knowing what's going to happen isn't necessarily a cause for fear. The fear is something bad might happen. And something bad might happen because I've done something wrong. The sting of death is sin. Once you take sin out of the picture, there's no more reason to be afraid. That's what Paul's saying. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Bondage! Those who live in fear of death are in bondage. Jesus came to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ can free a soul from such oppression. He can set the captive heart at liberty. Where are you tonight? If you knew that Jesus was coming back in ten minutes, how would you feel about that? Paul said the crown will be given to those who have loved His appearing. They like the idea of Jesus coming back. How would you feel? Christ has come so that death is no longer bane but blessing. It's not gloom, it's glory, it's not tragedy, it's triumph. It's just turning out the lamp because dawn has come. The Christian can echo Paul's words. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain there is an absolute truth. A truth that lines up with human experience and can make life livable and enjoyable and abundant. This truth is found in the words of Jesus Christ. And when obeyed, you will be free from your sin. Free from your guilt. Free from your fear. If you don't have that, I hope you'll listen very carefully and take the step you need to take when John offers the invitation and. Just a little while from now.